Well, good morning, Maple Grove. Awesome. A question, who here in this room or watching online is ready to dive into some alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, judging the thoughts and attitudes of your heart and mind, word of God? And, and, and let's do this. And, and I, I want to start off with some words, some passages of Scripture that God breathed, uh, two from the pen of Paul and one from the pen of Luke. And before we read them, I think it's a really good idea for us to pray. Uh, because today's conversation just might be one of the most important ones that we could ever have. Get it? Good. And, and so uh, you're in a dangerous place this morning because God's word is about to come at each and every one of us. And I want to encourage you to, to pray with palms open, kind of symbolic that you're ready to receive from God this morning. Heavenly Father, we humbly come before you. We love you. We worship you. God, there's no one like you. No one loves us like you love us. God, you move mountains, you slay giants, you part seas. God, you came down and put on flesh and died for us. God, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know our wants, our needs, our desires, our hopes, our fears. And God, I pray this morning that you would help us to have open hearts to hear your word this morning. God, I pray that you enable me to speak well for you in a way that brings you honor and glory. May we be like Sam, you said, Lord, I am listening. In Jesus' name, amen. The first passage is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and Paul writes these words. For Christ's love compels us, because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live, someone say that those who live, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And then to the church in Galatia, Paul wrote these words in chapter 2, verse 20. He writes, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, someone say, the life I now live, in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then Luke records these words in the 14th chapter of his gospel. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turned to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Well, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish it. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Uh, won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot 
be my disciple. May God bless and empower the reading of his alive and active word this morning. Amen. So we're in this verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Matthew. The king and his kingdom. And that's what we're doing. We are going verse by verse by verse, right? Uh, This is week 50 in our study of Matthew. Uh, We're not skipping over anything. We're not skimming over the hard stuff. We're just diving into whatever comes our way. If Jesus talks about marriage, we talk about marriage. If he talks about divorce, we talk about divorce. If he talks about lust or anger, we talk about that. If he talks about turning the other cheek, we talk about that. Talks about being holy, we talk about that. About loving our enemies, we we talk about that. And listen, ever since we launched this series, the goal has been this, to gain a greater understanding of who Jesus really is and also what it looks like to live in the kingdom he established 2,000 years ago so that we would know Jesus more clearly, love him more dearly, and follow him more nearly day by day, by day, by day. And I think that's some good goals, right? Don't you? I mean, if you know Jesus better, right? And you love him better, and you follow him better. Now, if you remember, when Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed because Jesus spoke as one who had authority. And then right after that powerful sermon, Jesus came down from the mountain and began to demonstrate that authority. And that's what Matthew's chapter 8 and 9 are all about. Jesus demonstrating his authority over all things, over nature, over sickness, over demons, over sin, over the grave, and over how we must live out our lives if we choose to follow him. And again, here's the deal. Here's the point that the God is making through Matthew in Matthew chapter 8 and 9. Since Jesus possesses absolute authority in the world, he therefore warrants, demands, requires allegiance from the world. Allegiance from me, allegiance from you, and allegiance from the person to your right and left. Get it? Good. And here's the truth. Everyone walking on the face of this planet, whether or not they acknowledge or submit to his authority, is still under that authority. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Beaver Grove, it's May the 21st, day 171 of the year 2023. You still got 194 days left to get it right. And we'll be unpacking Matthew 8, 18 through 22, and a conversation I'm calling, the way in is all in. My line is the way in, your line is, is all in. The way in, the way in, the way in, in this conversation, Jesus will demonstrate that he has authority to tell us how we must live our lives if we choose to follow after him. And understand, it's Jesus who determines what following him involves and requires, not us, right? It's Jesus that determines what following him involves and requires, not us. And here's our text. When Jesus saw the crowd... Around him, he gave orders to cross over to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, 
but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Okay, that seems a little rough and harsh, doesn't it? Hey, check out what a guy named J.C. Ryle, the Bishop of Liverpool, wrote about this passage in his commentary in 1856. I actually have a copy of it. Pretty good. Here's what he says. There's something deeply impressive in both of these statements. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Follow me and let the dead bury their dead. They ought to be well weighed by all profession Christians. They teach us plainly that people who show a desire to come forward and profess themselves to be true disciples should be warned plainly to count the cost before they begin. Before they begin. Are they prepared to endure hardship? Are they ready to carry the cross? If they are not, they are not fit to begin. These words teach us plainly that there are times when a Christian must literally give up all for Christ's sake. He continues, it would be well for the churches of Christ if these sayings of our Lord were more remembered than they are. It may be well feared that the lesson they contain is too often overlooked by the ministers of the gospel. And that thousands are admitted to full communion who are never warned to count the cost. And this part I put in your notes. Nothing, in fact, has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession and talk fluently of his experience. It has been painfully forgotten that numbers do not make strength. And that there may be a great quantity of mere out-religion while there is very little of real grace. Let us all remember this. Let us keep nothing back from young professors and inquirers after Christ. Let us not enlist them on false pretensions. Let us, tell, let us tell them plainly that there is a crown of glory at the end, but let us tell them no less plainly that there is a daily cross in the way. End quote. Powerful. Like, I think J.C. could have written those words about our time. Now, here's how I want to attack our text this morning, by unpacking four statements. Statement number one, crowds don't impress Jesus. Statement number two, Jesus is looking for followers, not fans. Statement number three, Jesus is more interested in our lives than our words. And then... Number four, Jesus is looking for commitment, not excuses. Before we dive in, I think it's a good idea for us to take two right now to get you all ready for what's coming. Security, block the doors. No one's leaving. All right. Hey, take two. This is where we welcome those around you. We usually get up our feet and talk to do that. It usually works better. Amen. All right. Okay, let's do this. Good job. Maple Grove, the way in, the way in, the way in, whoo, sweet. All right, first point in your notes is crowds don't impress Jesus. Matthew writes, when Jesus saw, and that word there carries the idea that not just seeing, but seeing and evaluating. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, that word 
crowd is the Greek word aklos. Aklos, kind of like that. O-K-H-L-O-S. It basically means a large gathering of people. Aklocratic is a word. I, I never heard aquacratic, but that actually means government by the masses or mobs. So that's where we get the word aquacratic is from the Greek word aklos. Aklos. It's like you're getting a loogie going on it. All right, anyhow, a, a large gathering of people. I could have just said that, but I like to embarrass myself by my, my great way to pronunciate words. Pronunciator. Okay, and this is the fifth time so far that Jesus has used this word to describe the crowds that were gathering around Jesus. After teaching the synagogue about the kingdom and healing every disease among the people, large crowds from Galilee, the, the capitalists, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region around the Jordan followed him, Matthew 4, 25. In Matthew 5, verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went on the mountainside and sat down. In Matthew 7, verse 28, when Jesus finished giving the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed. In Matthew 8, verse 1, when Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. And here, verse 18, after healing the leper, after hearing the centurion servant, after hearing Peter's mother-in-law, and after spending probably all night long healing all the people who came to be healed outside of Peter's house, Jesus sees another large crowd. And Matthew writes, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to disciples to gather more people to the show. No, that's not what he says. Instead, he says, when he saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. He, he, he gave orders to, that they needed to leave and go. He gave orders that they needed to go somewhere else to a, another place. I'm sure his disciples are thinking, what are you doing? Don't you see all these people around you? I mean, things are really beginning to heat up and start looking really good for, for you and, and, and for us. I'm understanding crowds don't impress Jesus. Now, sure, they impress us, right? I mean, gathering large crowds is what it's all about. I looked online, and so you know it's got to be true, right? Everything online is true. Uh, but I, was, I, I Googled, how many adults attend church on Easter Sunday? In, in the U.S. And they said 40%. So that would be about 100, over 100 million adults on Easter Sunday. And then I Googled, how many attend church on the average Sunday of American adults? They said about 20%. So 50 million that were there on, and, and I may be an odd pastor, but I don't get all that excited. I, I think Easter is great, don't get me wrong. But if people just come for that day and 50 million don't come the next day and don't come the next Easter, that's not that impressive, is it? It makes us feel good. We broke a record. We had police directing traffic. But again, unlike us, Jesus wasn't impressed by the crowds. He wasn't interested in drawing a crowd or being a celebrity. I like what Charles Swindoll wrote about crowds in his commentary on Matthew. He writes, in my experience, crowds are sort of self-perpetuating. When they get large enough and reach critical mass, they develop their own gravitational pull. People first gather around some personal event, but then others gather simply because a lot of people are gathered. Sometimes people just want to be part of the action, experience, the excitement of being in a large crowd. They aren't necessarily convinced of the cause. <laughs> this is funny. 
Last night I had a dream. I had a dream, right? I had a dream. And, and, and uh, about this huge, massive church with crowds coming into it. And some friend, I, he was a friend of my dream, but I don't know who he is in real life, right? It's taking me in. I just see this massive building. And he goes, yeah, look at all the marble. All our flooring is marble. Look at the marble up the walls. And, and they were walking down this thing, and they got all these booths selling T-shirts and things with all the name, with the name of the church on it. And, and, uh, and then I woke up. I thought, wow, that's kind of crazy that I'm dreaming this when I'm talking about this. So it all concludes, the principles are simple. Don't follow Jesus because of the size of the crowd. He writes, guard against becoming a groupie of a church, a ministry, or a celebrity preacher or teacher. Steer clear of becoming a fan. End quote. Now, it's not that Jesus is against crowds, but he just wasn't content to mark them down as part of a new attendance record. You see, he wasn't interested in followers for followers' sake. Instead, he wanted to make disciples for the kingdom of God. I said, Jesus wasn't about just trying to get people to make a decision. He was about making disciples. And decisions sometimes are made in the heat of an emotional moment, and they don't last. You see, discipleship is about a long obedience in the same direction. Discipleship is a long obedience going in the same direction direction. And so when Jesus saw this large crowd around him, he knew that most were not committed, dedicated followers, but most were riled up fans who were there for the show and the excitement. I believe what I tell you, there was a lot of excitement around Jesus, right? When you cast out demons, heal every sickness and disease, when you cleanse lepers, when you raise the dead, when you speak words that no one has ever spoken before. But listen, rather than finding another high place from which to preach to the crowd or a way of organizing them to grow even more. Jesus did what seems unthinkable in our modern Western mindset. He gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake so that in order to follow him, they would have to leave. And so now both to hear and see him, they actually had to do something. They had to leave and follow. Follow and leave. Leave and follow. Follow and leave. That's the call of discipleship. Listen, throughout the gospel, we see Jesus time and time again thinning out and sifting the crowds around him, either by something he says or something he does. Like in the passage I read from Luke earlier, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. I mean, talk about a way to thin out a crowd, right? I mean, that, that's one way to figure out who's actually part of the crowd and who's actually wanting to follow you. If you want to come after me, you have to hate your family. You have to hate even your own life. And, and we know from the rest of the of scriptures that, you know, Jesus wants us to love our family. He's using hyperbole here to say, your love for me is so great that your love for your family comparison seems like hate. That you love me so much. We see him do the same thing in John chapter 6. You know, he feeds the 5,000. The people right then are ready to make him king. They, 
He withdraws to, to a mountainside by himself, and when the crowds found him, here's what he said to them in John 6, verse 26. Truly, truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and have your fill. You're looking for me, not for me, but for you. For what you think you can get. You're not here for me, you're here for the, you're here for the show. And then just later in John 6, Jesus begins to say some things that were very offensive to the crowd. And they all left. Like, all of them. And Jesus turned to the 12 and said, in John 6, 67, 69 through 9, you don't want to leave too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Again, it's not that Jesus is against crowds in and of themselves. It's just that he wasn't, he was looking for followers and not looking for fans. And there's a big difference between the two. Here's a basic definition of a fan. A fan is an, an enthusiastic admirer. It, it's the guy, a fan is a guy who goes to the football game with no shirt on, and a painted belly and chest. It's a guy who, he, he cheers in the stands. He, he has a signed jersey on his wall. He has flags and bumper stickers on his car. But he's never in the game. He never breaks a sweat. He, he never takes a hard hit in the open field. He knows, all, he knows all about the players. He can rattle off their latest stats, but he doesn't know them. He just yells and cheers. But nothing is really required of him. There's no sacrifice he has to make. Check out this quote from Kyle Eidelman in his book, Not a Fan. This is also in your notes. Jesus was never interested in having fans. When he defines the kind of relationship he wants, enthusiastic admirer isn't an option. My concern is that many of our churches in America have gone from being sanctuaries to becoming stadiums. And every week, all the fans come to the stadium where they cheer for Jesus, but have no interest in truly following him. The biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians, but aren't actually interested in following Jesus. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them. End quote. Now, understand, a fan is someone who can and will take off his Jesus jersey depending on the situation. You see fans try to negotiate or renegotiate the terms of the deal. Sure, I'll follow Jesus as long as it fits my schedule and preferences. Sure, I'll serve in the church or join a small group or give within reason as long as it doesn't disrupt my plans for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Sure, I follow Jesus, but don't ask me to forgive people who hurt me. They don't deserve that. Sure, I follow Jesus, but I'm not going to sell any of my stuff in order to give and help out the poor. Off comes the jersey. Sure, I follow Jesus, but don't ask me to save sex for marriage. I can't help my desires. Sure, I follow Jesus, but don't ask me to do something or go somewhere that makes me uncomfortable. You see, those are things that fans can do, but followers cannot. Get it? Good. 
And here's the deal. Jesus never left open the option of selective commitment or partial surrender. Like, there are no such things as an associate disciple, right? The way in is all in. Bottom line, what a fan says to Jesus, Jesus, I love you, I'm committed to you. But let's not get all crazy about it. You see, fans, this is in your notes too, fans don't mind Jesus making some minor changes in their lives, but Jesus wants to turn their lives upside down. Fans don't mind a little touch-up work, but Jesus wants a complete renovation. Fans come to Jesus thinking tune-up, but Jesus is thinking overhaul. Fans think a little makeup is fine, but Jesus is thinking what? Makeover. Fans want Jesus to inspire them, but Jesus wants to interfere with their lives. Amen? Before we move on, I think it's important that we answer the question like, why do people think being a fan is even an option? I reflected on this and I came up with four reasons why we would think that being a fan, that being an enthusiastic admirer of Jesus is an option. The first reason is preachers, teachers, and church leaders. And this one hits close to home because I'm a preacher, I'm a teacher. And I'm a church leader. Truth is, I, I can relate to what Kyle Eidelman wrote in the prologue to his book, Not a Fan. He wrote this. And Kyle Eidelman is a, now he's a senior pastor of Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, a, a church that has a 10,000 seat huge auditorium, you know, that runs like 30,000, you know, very influential in Louisville, really holds to the truth of scripture. He writes, too often in my preaching, I've tried to talk people I tried to talk people into following Jesus. I wanted to make following him as appealing, comfortable, and convenient as possible. Now, why would church leaders do this? Make following Jesus easy and as appealing, comfortable, and convenient as possible. Why will you make following Jesus something where Jesus does everything for us and expects little, if anything, from us? Here's my answer. Because we don't want to offend people, make them uncomfortable, and have them walk out the door and never come back. Why? Because we, we want to have a, we want our church to be larger. And listen, sometimes a goal may seem noble, like we really do want people to be saved. We don't want to scare people off. And a large church is a good thing, and so we try to sell them on Jesus. Just somehow we can make Jesus more appealing than he really is. I mean, it's like we think that if we show people who Jesus really is, God the Son, our Savior, Redeemer, the Alpha and Omega, the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the one who adopted us, forgives us, loves us, chose us, is preparing a place for us, we think of that, we show people who Jesus really is and tell them up front what he demands, they will not want him. I think another reason we think it's an option is because of American culture. We are a consumer-driven 
culture. Wouldn't you agree? And, and we can bring that mindset into the churches we choose to attend. And far too many people come to church or choose a church to attend by asking this question, what can this church do for me? Rather than asking, how can I use my gifts, my talents, my abilities, my time, my resources to help this church become all that God wants her to be so that more people can be brought to Christ, be built up in Christ, and sent out for Christ to make a difference? What can they do for me? And over the years, I've seen, it's been a lot of years, and I've seen a lot of people leave and go to different churches and Really, if ever do they say, hey, I'm leaving to go to another church because I found a church that really needs my help. I have some gifts, talents, and abilities, and you guys are pretty set in this area, and they really need some help. I need to go there to help them out. Matter of fact, in 30-plus years, I've never had anybody come and tell me that. Not once. Instead, people go, well, you know what? They got a better children's ministry over there. Have you seen their worship team? I can get coffee and bagels there on Sunday, right? Again, I'm not saying that stuff is bad, right? But our goal should be, hey, what, what can we do for the church? So our American culture is, is gotten in there, right? Also, I think the company we keep, right? If a bunch of fans hang out together, they convince each other that they're actually followers when they're just fans. There's a book out, maybe you heard of it, by David Platt called Radical, Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream. And it's a great book, but I think the title shows us how much fallen Christ has been watered down in our culture. In reality, the book should be called Normal, because a follower of Christ is by definition radical. If you don't believe me, read the book of Acts. We've been reading that. We're talking about people who are persecuted, beaten, arrested, flogged, chased, insulted, stoned, and they keep on coming, and they keep on sharing. And fourth reason we think it's an option is, is us. I mean, we have God's word, and either we've chosen not to read it, or we've chosen to ignore what it says, or at least ignore the parts that we don't like, or that make us uncomfortable. Question, is this conversation making anyone else as uncomfortable as it is making me? Good. Because what if all of life, hear me, what if all of life comes down to this one question, am I a follower of Christ? I mean, what if there really is a heaven and there really is a hell? And what if where we will spend eternity comes down to the question, am I a follower of Jesus? Not am I a fan of Jesus? Not am I an admirer of Jesus? Not am I a church attender? But am I a follower? Am I a disciple of Jesus? See, being a follower of Jesus causes me to look at life differently, to live life differently. You do something to hurt me, how do I respond? Well, it depends on whether I'm a fan or a follower. Um, my flesh wants to do something I know is wrong. Steve, go ahead and do this. It's no big deal. Yeah, it is a big deal. That is, if I'm a follower of Jesus. You know, one of the most sobering and terrifying passages in Scripture is found in Matthew chapter 7. It's where Jesus tells of a future day when many people who consider themselves followers will find out that they had been fans all along. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many crowds will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Question, do those words of Jesus scare you a little? I mean, do they give you pause? Do they make you and motivate you to want to examine your life and your walk with Christ? Next, Jesus is more interested in our lives than in our words. Teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I mean, so here's this guy. He's not some lowly fisherman. He's a man of position and influence, skilled in studying and teaching Scripture. Like, what a guy to have join your team. A scholar like this will give credibility to this movement. And listen, if we were there, we would probably be saying, hey, make sure we get this guy to fill out a connection card, right? We got to have his address and email, right? We got we got to make sure that this guy comes back, because this guy has some prestige and maybe a little bit of a bank with him. And notice that this teacher of law actually comes to Jesus, a blue collar carpenter from a backwoods town, and calls him teacher. Pretty remarkable. And then he makes this incredible statement: "I will follow you wherever you go." Like who wouldn't want this guy on your team? Now we don't know the motives, right? I mean, behind this man's words, like we, you and I can't read that in people. Jesus can. And obviously, he wasn't impressed by this man's offer. And so, Jesus says, listen, follow me and being on my team is not what you think it is. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man, the term Son of Man is used like 80 times in the Gospels. It was a messianic title for Jesus from Gen- Daniel chapter 7 where it talks about one day Jesus will establish a kingdom that will reign over all other kingdoms. Foxes have dens and birds have nests. Yet these animals, these creatures have a place. But the Son of Man, the Messiah, the King of Kings, has no place to lay his head. In other words, yes, I'm the Messiah you read about in Scripture. Yes, I've come to establish my kingdom. And yes, my teaching and these miracles are a fulfillment of prophecy. However, following me is not what you think. Understand, it's not a fast track to power, glory, riches, fame, and position on earth. In fact, I don't even have a place to lay my head. As J.C. Ralph said, yes, there's glory in the end, but there is a daily cross in the way. Understand, as the scribe looked at Jesus, and as he watched the countless miracles, he knew he was a Messiah. But remember, the Jewish people back then thought that Jesus would come up and set up a worldwide Jewish empire. And I think this guy saw an opportunity to get on the ground floor to, to be an initial investor, if you will. And Jesus says, sure, you can follow me, but I want you to know what you're getting into. Like, there isn't going to be a, a penthouse apartment and a corner office with a window and a great view in your future. And so Jesus really does want us to follow him. But he wants us to know that there's a cost. There will be sacrifice. He wants us to know that the way in is all in. He's like, hey, he's like, hey, it's great that you want to follow me. But you need to understand 
what it really means and be prepared and be prepared to pay the cost. I like what Martin Luther said. He says of religion, and back then religion just meant a faith, right? So you could, you know, we think well, no one likes religion, right? Okay. You could say a faith that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is what? It's worth nothing. A guy named Daniel Berrigan said, if you want to follow Jesus, you had better look good on wood. <laughs> Cross. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world? Have people say, man, what an entrepreneur, what an innovator they were. Look at all the things they did. And yet, lose or forfeit their very soul. You check out what a guy named Bo Chansey, he, he wrote the book Pray for One. He has a book called Light Yourself on Fire. I lost my copy in order to the last one that was in stock. Here's what he said. Listen, following Jesus is an all or nothing deal. There's no such thing as partial surrender. And to follow him, we must completely lay down our lives. We do not get to pick and choose what we hold on to and what we give up. Total surrender is the only option. Take a moment to examine your life. Who is in charge? Who's calling the shots? Who's the director of your life? Is it you? Or is it Jesus? He continues, it can't be both. If the answer both you and Jesus, then total surrender has not occurred. Jesus will not stand for it. He will not share his throne. Call him selfish if you like, but that's just the way it is. Jesus desires you, and he's not willing to share you with anyone, including yourself. Total surrender is an outlandish extreme that justifiably produces discomfort in most. We may believe or accept the concept on a cognitive level, but in our hearts, most of us are holding on hope that there will be a little wiggle room on the deal. We may desire the appearance of surrender, but we clearly know who's in control. This is not one of those fuzzy, hard-to-interpret theological ideals. It's clear-cut. Total surrender and nothing less is required. Nowhere in Scripture do we see Jesus backing off of this. Jesus wants all of you. He wants your hopes. He wants your dreams. He wants your goals, your plans, your agenda, your lifestyle, your families, your relationship, your jobs, your service, your hobbies, your gifts, your talents, your money, your abilities, your passion. The list goes on. He purchased, he purchased you, and that price was great. He concludes, Jesus is not negotiating this deal with you. His final offer is on the table. End quote. According to Jesus, the way in, it's all in. in Maple Grove, it's May 21st, 2023, and Jesus wants every one of us to know that there's always a cost to following him and being his disciple. I like what this dude Vance said. What our Lord said about cross-bearing and being, and being is not in fine type. It's in bold print on the face of the contract, right? Like he didn't hide this in somewhere. Like you make this deal, right? You didn't read the fine print. Are you kidding me? I thought it was just salvation and grace and I go to heaven. What is this sacrifice thing? No, he's like, from the contract. You want to follow me? Deny yourself. I understand, it might be a financial cost. Not just in your tithes and offering, that should be a giving, but 
You know, maybe how you do your taxes. How you fill out your expense reports. Where you invest. It could be some X4 type stuff where you sell your stuff that was, you thought was for you in order to help someone else out. There may be a relational cost. You could lose some relationships. Some friendships. Some of you did when you chose Christ. There could be a vocational cost. Right? He, he may actually, not everybody, but some people, he says, hey, guess what? You're going to change vocation. This was your plan. Guess what? I got a different plan. Or he just may say, hey, you need to be different where you are. You need to act different. Do things different. And there could be a cost. I remember when I was in the, in the Navy at the shipyard, uh, every Friday our, our chief and all the guys back after in the engineering, yeah, they called it Attitude Adjustment Day. And everybody got to leave at 11 o'clock to go to a men's club. And I, I'm, like, I'm like, dude, I ain't going. He said, well, then you got to stay at 5 o'clock. I said, really? I, I, what do you think when I call the Weiss group and tell them what you're doing on Fridays, what do you think they're going to say? I said, I'm going home at 11. And I went home at 11. You know, and, and, and you know what? My evals, to be honest, suffered. <laughs> yeah, because I, I wasn't one of their buds, right? I, I didn't do what they said. You know, it could be vocational cost because you're not going to bow down to the cultural norms and people are going to see that and you're going to maybe pay a price for it. There could be a physical cost, right? Years ago, I was in Bangladesh and I, I met guys who had been kidnapped and tortured and had their homes burned. And I'm there to teach them. <laughs> like, I've never been spit on. I've never been beaten. I've never been arrested. Jesus said, blessed are you when you, people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And listen, in our ungodly culture, let me be real, right? If you dare to speak up and stand for biblical truth, there's a good chance that you'll be attacked, canceled, and hated, and vilified, right? If you, if you have the courage, say, hey, this is what I believe. Like, one thing I believe, you know, I, I believe that God created life. And I believe that life inside of a, of a woman's body is being knitted by the creative earth, and I believe that life deserves to live. I, I believe that. I believe it's wrong to take that life. You know, our culture thinks differently, right? And, and, and I'm not ashamed to say that. I don't say that for me. I say that because that's what God says. I'm not going to take something God created. Let me destroy that. Let me destroy something that God is knitting and has already breathed life into. I don't care what culture says, right? And, and we have to take stands like that. And, and, and there'll be a lifestyle calls for all of us, right? Because we've got to live differently than we are. It might mean forgiving the person who hurts you without getting even. It might mean loving someone who's been unkind to you, loving them tangibly. It might mean taking the risk and working Jesus into a conversation at work. My studies this week, I came across the story of a guy named Beckett Cook. He was a gay man in Hollywood who achieved success in set design in the fashion industry. He worked with stars and supermodels. He traveled the world to design photo shoots for the likes of Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. He attended parties at the home of Paris Hilton and Prince. He spent his summer swimming in Drew Barrymore's pool. But about 12 or so years ago, he encountered the gospel and surrendered his life to Jesus. 
He pursued a degree in theology. He wrote a book about his conversion entitled A Change of Affection, A Gay Man's Incredible Story of Redemption. Actually, one clicked that book the other day. He's a really good writer. Um, That was about 12 years ago he did that. In 2020, I came across this tweet of his. Here's what he tweeted. Leaving the LGBTQ community Leaving the LGBTQ community is not unlike leaving a cult like Scientology. This kind of apostasy leads to all manner of threats, career canceling, and the complete rejection of lifelong friends. I wouldn't have it any other way. Jesus is worth it. Is he worth it to you? Wouldn't have it any other way. The way in is all in. Crowds don't impress Jesus. Jesus looked for followers, not fans. He's more interested in our lives than our words. And he's looking for commitment, not excuses. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my, my father. Jesus said, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Now this guy is referred to as another disciple. So apparently he had already made a commitment to follow Jesus. And he doesn't address Jesus as, as teacher. He addresses Jesus as Lord. However, when he hears that Jesus orders everyone to go to the other side of the lake, he says, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And that sounds reasonable, right? And Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. You follow me. I mean, why is he so mean and insensitive? Now, there's a lot of debate about what this guy's statement actually means. Some think his dad has just died and he's going to have the funeral. I don't think that's very likely. Um, when they died, they were buried within 24 hours. Some think that his dad was sick, and he was just waiting for him to die, and then he would follow Jesus. Possible. The majority think, and I agree, that his dad probably wasn't sick at all. But that he wanted to stay around to fulfill his responsibility until his father did die. And then, of course, he could settle the estate and get his inheritance. Basically, he's telling Jesus that his family responsibilities exempt him from making the lifestyle changes that discipleship requires. And I don't think it matters which option you choose, because the point is the same, and it's very piercing. To follow Jesus means that he comes first before all things, even before our family. Let the dead, obviously spiritually dead, right? Because like a dead person can't bury another dead person. You know, let the spiritually dead Bury their physically dead. Let the unbelieving world attend to their business because we have kingdom work to do. He's looking for commitment, not excuses. Not, Lord, I will follow you. I'll do what you say. I'll live how you call me to live. I'll, I will act on what I hear you calling me to do. But first, let me. <laughs> first, let me. Question, do you have any but first, let me in your life? Lord, Lord, I'll give, I'll serve, I'll share my faith, I'll help the poor and needy, I'll sacrifice, but first, let me. First, let me do what I want. First, let me fulfill my dreams. First, let me do what makes me happy. He's looking for commitment, not excuses. In Luke 14, Jesus is having a meal with a bunch of guys and people, and some guys getting all excited as Jesus talking about the kingdom. He says, hey, Blessed is the one who eats at the feast of God in heaven. She goes, okay. And he tells this parable. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready. 
But they all like began to make excuses. First said, I have just bought a field and I must go see it. I guess he saw it online, didn't see it in person, right? Please excuse me. Another said, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. So another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Servant came back, reported this to his master. Then he ordered the house, became angry, and ordered his servant go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done, but there's still more room. The master told him, go out into the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of these who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. They're invited. They go to the other side. Uh, but they made excuses of why they could not do it now. And they lost that opportunity. Crowds don't impress Jesus. Jesus is looking for followers, not fans. Jesus is more interested in our lives than our words. Jesus is looking for commitment, not excuses. We're about to wrap up. When Jesus saw the crowds around him, he gave orders to cross over to the other side. Question, have you ever wondered what is on the other side? Have you ever wondered what is on the other side where we truly follow Jesus, where, where we leave and follow, follow and leave, where we strive to be fully devoted followers of Jesus? I, I think some of the things that are on the other side is where we actually experience, not just read about not being anxious about anything. I think on the other side is a peace that transcends all understanding. I think on the other side is having that contentment, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I think what is on the other side is having a hope that is living, that nothing can shake it in this world. I think what's on the other side is having a confidence that makes us a conqueror in all things. I think what's on the other side is having that perfect love that drives out all fear. And where we have pure joy, no matter what trials or hardship we go through. I think what's on the other side is where we know who we are, we know whose we are, and we know where we are going. And we're the ones who lose out when we don't go. We're cheating ourselves. I'm cheating myself. I remember my professor, I'm paraphrasing because I can't totally remember what he said, but I got the gist of it. He talked about, you know, like, like one of the most miserable ways to live is to be, is, is to do Christianity part way, is to do Christianity lukewarm, right? Because, like, you choose that and you're not getting to enjoy all the things in the world, because you can't do them. And then you feel guilty because you know you're not doing all the stuff Jesus said and you're just kind of miserable. The way in is all in. And, and, and listen, discipleship, maturity, it doesn't just happen. Like Cher said, right? If a good body was in a pill, everybody have a good body. Something like that. Remember that commercial from years ago? Sonny and Cher, I'm probably aging myself right there. Um, because she's like ancient by now. <laughs> Sorry. 
Sorry, Cher, you're not. Um, it doesn't just happen. We got to work on it. And, and, and here's something that I'm going to throw out there. Um, this coming fall, uh, we're going to be launching something you know, called DNA Groups. And the DNA, this stands for Discipleship, Nurturing or Caring, and Accountability. And uh, I don't know all that will entail, you know, what we're going to study, but basically it's going to be three to five people getting together one day a week for an entire year for discipleship, for caring, and accountability to become who Jesus wants us to be. And I got all kinds of books I'm studying. I'm going to put this thing together. If you would like to help me and say, hey, how can we do this, right? Because we want to go to the other side. They want to bring other people to the other side, you know? Just let me know. And, and, and if you're wondering right now, like, hey, what is my next step? Like, you say, well, I got to wait till the fall, <laughs> you know? Steve at thegrowseville.org. You're like, hey, you know what? My wall kind of stinks right now. You know, see, conviction without action is nothing, Right? You know, if you're not feeling convicted about your walk right now, I don't know what to tell you, right? My preacher in Virginia said, if that don't fire you up, your wood's wet, right? If you don't feel convicted, like, because if you're like, wait, I'm, I'm, man, me and God, you know, God uses me as the poster child for discipleship in heaven. You see, Steve? No, I, I know he doesn't, right? You know, if you're wondering, hey, what is your next step? Just let me know, right? We're in this together, right? Because I want to get to the other side. I want to take you with me. And, and, and I, I want to say one more thing. And, and you know, Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. Implicit in that is what? That you are what? You're alive, right? You're alive. Hey, you let the dead bury the dead, but you're alive. Because Jesus promised, right, that, that no one who gives up homes or families or fields. I'm going to read the scripture, right, because I'll, I'll mess it up. And now I'm going to pray. Appreciate your attention. Here's what he said. Woo! Okay. Hello. Steve, here's what he said. Truly I tell you, no one, because you're worried, right? Hey, if I leave all this stuff, is my life going to be okay? Am I going to make it? No one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive 100 times as much in the present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mother, children, and fields. Along with persecution, yeah, it's going to be hard. <laughs> In the age to come, eternal life. Amen. If you guys would stand, we're going to, I'm going to pray us in. And I would just encourage you as we sing this song, that you'll pause and just examine your life. You can't really examine mine. I, I can't really examine yours. You can't examine your spouse. They can't examine yours. But you, you can look at your own life. And do you want to be a follower or fan? Are you ready to stop making excuses and start making a commitment? Are you ready to have not just your words, but your lives be what Jesus wants them to be? And every week we take communion because everything we have is made possible through the death and sacrifice of Jesus. At the two stations on each side, you can find a communion cup that you can pick up. And you can just pick it up right when I'm done, right when I'm done praying. 
If you're, you have not surrendered to Jesus, you believe in him, but if you're not yet surrendered him in repentance and baptism, I encourage you to do that today. There's no, no need to wait. But you pray with me. Father, we love you. And Jesus, when we consider what you did, who you are, what you promise, you're worth it. God, help each of us, help me to examine our lives. You only want what's best for us, and you know what's best for us. Help us, move us, change us, challenge us, inspire us, overhaul us. In Jesus' name, amen.